I invite you now to pray with me. Our God of liberation, from the stain of sin, from the oppression of death, and from the suffering of the vulnerable, God who alleviates all suffering and alleviates all injustice, we extol you for you have restored us to new life. May this week of celebration for our country be one where we remember all that you have done for us and continue to do, working in the hearts of your people. We see how you have delivered us from every trial. You have established each of us as a strong mountain, says the psalmist in Psalm chapter 30. And though we were dismayed when you hid your, when you hid your face from us, we cried out to you that you may strengthen us once more and be our helper. Again and again, Lord, you rescue us from the depths of Sheol. Strip us of our sackcloth and clothe us in joy. We pray to you with thanksgiving that we are free to run, we are free to dance, and we are free to live our lives for you. We pray still that you may guide us to use our freedoms responsibly, to restore those remaining under oppression to justice. May our mission be set before us to continue going into the world in your stead, restoring justice where justice has been shaken, restoring love where there has been brokenness, and healing this great community. We ask that you be our helper, our sustainer, on our long, continuous journey to freedom for all. And may we walk with your steps guiding us at each point, knowing that it is by the cross that we live and breathe. It is by Christ's suffering that we have been made free. May the need for justice and the fight for unification bring us closer to fostering the kingdom of God on earth. Guide the hands and feet of those in this free country to draw all to your side. This week and always, may we never forget that our victories unfinished must be for you, our efforts for your glory, and that all we have is because of you. We know love and we know freedom because you have first set us free from death. Thank you for restoring all creation to life, and may your empowerment in bringing this gift of freedom to the world fill us and fill the world with the freedom to love and freedom to embrace. Unite us, as always, as one free nation under your hand, our God who heals all divides. May we, your faithful ones, praise you forevermore for turning all the mourning we see into dancing by the power of your Son. It is in all this that we, your people, pray. Amen.
too, am grateful to be with you today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 30. As a reminder, we are making our way through several psalms, reflecting on the ways that they reflect outward into our lives and out into the world the truth of our situation in the many ways that our lives are changed and stretched, pushed, pulled, filled with joy and with sadness. The psalms in very truthful worship language in the deepest, most authentic form of prayer share all of it. Not only together as the people of God, but together as the people of God to God Almighty. And that kind of honesty is so in short supply in many ways in our modern day. So as we reflect together today, we are going to be remembering last week our meditation on lament and the importance of lament and the central place lament holds in our lives to shake our fist at the way things are, recognizing it's not the way it should be. And offering our despair and our dismay to God and recognizing that it is God who will lead us through those circumstances. So today we are going to be reading a psalm that looks back on hard times and recognizes how God has brought the singer through. And even more in this honest recollection offering thanks to the only one who deserves them when all else fails. Psalm 30, a psalm, a song, for the dedication of the temple, or of the house, of David. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You have turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, there are some psalms that contain so much richness and so many quotable quotes, you don't always even know that they come from a particular psalm. We share the words so regularly and frequently with one another. If you're in doubt, 
some of your favorite quotes probably come from Psalm 30. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Or how about this bargaining with God? What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will the dust proclaim your faithfulness? And one of my favorites, I turn and return to so often, you turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. I was reminded what it might be like for wailing to move to dancing when I picked up the saxophone again. Thanks, Keith. Uh, and as I played, you know, you have to get your embouchure just right or else you get kind of squeaky sounds and you have to blow more air and clench down, sort of double down on your commitment to the note. And it converts from a squeaky, weak, pitiful sound to something that sounds like real music. You've turned my wailing into dancing. You have removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. I've been reading these superscriptions, that is the little notes at the top of the psalm, very intentionally because sometimes they give us a little hint about how we might understand over time either the original singers or they might send, uh, understood what they were singing or it might take us to another place in scripture to understand a bit of context about how we might read this today. And we discover several things about Psalm 30. The first is that it's a psalm. It's a song. And that it was intended for the dedication of the temple or the dedication of a house, which is probably the better translation. And we know that it is of David. So we're going to start with that piece of David. Why would David sing this psalm? Some scholars tell us we shouldn't search too hard and just let it be. But others point us particularly to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21 has a powerful story about David in a bit of nationalistic swagger, wants to take a census of his armies, wants to take a census of his land. The emphasis is on his, right? And he wants to count just how powerful he has become as king person by person, sword by sword, life by life. His general is not very comfortable with this. No one's comfortable with this. And we discover that God is ultimately very displeased with David for doing this because it is the Lord, it is not his army, that is the source of David's prosperity and the security of the land. And so as the story plays out, God gives David a choice the people in response will either need to suffer a famine or there are parts that are going to be overrun by an army or my own angel will come through and lay waste. And the angel of the Lord makes its way through the people and God's wrath is exacted. Death is everywhere in this story. David repents and God relents and there's life again. And it is on the other side of this story that David, after reflection upon his own actions, and also recognizing that it is not he who will build the temple, does everything he can to organize the materials and to organize the work and to lay the groundwork for the construction of the actual temple that would be Solomon's to build. Maybe as David reflected on those experiences of sin and rebellion, pride, 
and judgment, of the death that the people experienced and the new life they were given, the preparation of the building of the temple, all of that is behind the superscription for the dedication of the house of David. It is certain, a little later, that Psalm 30 became applied to the exile that the people experienced. When the Babylonians came and destroyed that first temple, and when the Babylonians came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took into captivity the best and the brightest of the people, removing not only their hope for the present as they looked up the hill and saw no temple, but also their hope for the future as the best and brightest leaders are all taken away to be impressed into service by Babylon. Maybe when they finally returned and that second temple was built, a dead Israel raised to new life could sing these songs as they found new life and, in a sense, favor God's restored vision upon them again. We know for sure that in liturgical practice, a little later, this psalm was sung at the rededication and in the remembrance of that time when Judas Maccabeus restored the temple after it had been desecrated by Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. In fact, that word dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah, if that helps you to connect the two. But we read these as Christians, not only looking back as a a historical moment, but also as a way of understanding how Jesus was at work and is at work and will be at work in our lives. Can we find Jesus in this psalm as well? We need to look no further than Good Friday and Easter and to hear all those references to death and the pit and the grave and lifted up and brought me up and spared. We can hear Jesus through and through. That reference to the temple and its restoration surely for me calls to mind John 2. When after Jesus cleansed the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jewish leaders did not understand what he was saying. Indeed, his own followers did not understand what he was saying until John tells us the temple he spoke of was his body. And they understood this only after he was raised from the dead. In the very obscure and sanctified far out parts of my own imagination, I wonder if Jesus wasn't humming this psalm as he walked out of a borrowed grave. Joy comes in the morning as that temple that was his body was lifted up in this one where we now see God face to face. And what about you? As you hear this psalm sung today, what does it speak into your life? That description of trouble is so generic. I think it's intentionally generalized. We're not told what the depths were. We're not told who the enemies are. We're not told what illnesses are healed, what sins were committed, or what the nature of God's anger even felt like or was like. It's almost as though Psalm 30 is written for us as an invitation. 
for any and all of us who might be able to relate to the experience of having your life radically changed from brokenness to healing. Radically changed from sin by forgiveness. Radically changed from self-reliance to God-reliance. And understanding that none of this was of yourselves, as Paul would later say, but it is a gift of God. Well, it's time for a little nuance now. If Psalm 30 is known for anything, it's some of the language that I've been emphasizing today. Probably that line in verse 5 about weeping, lasting for the night, but joy coming in the morning. That just resonates with us. The idea of joy coming in the morning, it's something that's repeated throughout the Bible. It's something we tell ourselves and we tell each other in hard times, and it is a perfectly fine expression of a very abiding hope, I think. But we have to disengage from our time-bound nature to mourning. When I was doing youth ministry, I used to count down the hours and then the minutes and then finally the seconds to the end of a lock-in. You'd stay overnight and it would start. And I had a, 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 an intern one time uh, whom I supervised for a year, and she was an extraordinary musician, extraordinary preacher, great pastor. She's been a pastor in Illinois, uh, now she's in Iowa, for years and years and years. And uh, as we sat down, about two in the morning, she started to weep at a lock-in. Just wept. She was exhausted. She felt beat up by the experience. And she said, I'm not sure God is calling me to ministry if I can't make it through this experience. And I said, a lock-in is a terrible standard to hold yourself to. No one can make it through the night. But sometimes we think, oh, if we can just five more hours, four more hours, three more hours, two more hours. We know that real life doesn't work on such a predictable pattern. We can't wait a certain fixed amount of time for joy to return but in the poetry of this psalm, we know, we know, as all believers know, that the morning can be a long, long time away. I think about how naive I was at the beginning of the COVID experience, which, while taking it seriously, and we could hear, you know, Fox News reports, that's where I first heard it, actually, that there was this virus in China, and we needed to be on the lookout for it. Uh, by the time February rolled around, we were talking about it as deacons. We need to take this seriously. By March, everyone was taking it seriously to some extent. But how naive I was sitting with our staff. Maybe we can go week by week about worshiping together. Maybe we can just you know, ride out this week. We'll, we'll part ways. And then uh, naively thinking, gosh, if we can just make it, you know, we'll stay at home. We'll hunker down. Uh, we'll pat ourselves on the back for our discipline. And we'll be back together by Easter. And we kept pushing our plans back and everything changed over and over again. And the wait became interminable. And then we discovered that the morning and the joy that came with the morning wasn't when one you know, great moment, when a, when a curtain was lifted and it's all over and done with. But instead we get little glimpses, a little ray of light into our life. Maybe it was the first time you ate inside a restaurant again. Or maybe, like me, the first time I noticed one of my children opted not to wear a mask when after two and a half years he had, without fail, worn it. We get these little glimpses, a little ray of light, 
sort of like that moment at the dawn where right as the sun peers over, it's just a ray of light, daybreak, it's called, when the light first shines. Sometimes that's what the joy looks like. That's what it sounds like. It's not a great all all and, and forever change, but instead little glimpses of the new life that is certainly on the way. Those of you who are grieving know, for instance, that this is the way of it. I was struck right between the eyes this morning as I checked my calendar. And one of the habits uh, I've acquired over the last 10 years, because Google Calendar makes it easy, is I note when someone has died. And I set it to remind me once a year when it happened. And this morning, I remembered it was a year ago, we said goodbye to Harold Birch. And the thing I've noticed as I make my way through my calendar is that more and more of the days are filled. I look out here and I recognize the the journeys all of you all are on as you try and make sense of life without someone you love and you know that there isn't some magical moment when all of the pain goes away. Now the flow of tears does slow down. And those waves of, of traumatic sadness they do recede. But I hope you'll agree with me that there's never one time when you're completely over it. And sometimes your progress is known in the little successes, getting out of bed in the morning or making your way back to church and sitting in the pew by yourself. All of these are glimpses of what it is like when the morning comes, not all at once, but Ray by Ray. I remember one time when I was in a season of profound sadness. This was when I was in divinity school and never thought I would laugh again and spent months not laughing. And there was one time in class, quite unexpectedly, somebody said something. I don't even remember what the joke was and I don't remember if it was all that funny. But I felt a laugh from the tips of my toes sort of bubble up all the way through my body through my throat and out. And it was the deepest, heartiest, most involuntary belly laugh I could remember in a long time. I was sad for many days after that again. But I remember that laugh. That was the first time I laughed. A glimpse of the new life. And so for us, we need to start making space for both of these experiences, both the pain and the joy that does come in the morning. And beginning to look to the God who makes heaven and earth, makes the sun to rise, and will bring the morning finally and fully to us. In the film, it's also a play, Shadowlands, which is the story of C.S. Lewis's romance and marriage to joy, David Men. One of the things that complicates their relationship even though she is the love of C.S. Lewis's life, is that she has cancer. And they both know that it's eventually going to take her life. And Lewis, in the play, has a hard time grappling with that cancer, and, and he's trying to downplay it over and over again. He doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to sorrow over it. But Joy is the one who says, that's the deal. Joy and sorrow have this connection in our lives. And sometimes, paradoxically, the presence of our sorrow is what gives fuel and voice to our joy. 
I talked to Pam this morning uh, and asked her for permission to, to remind you all at Doug's funeral. He would have loved playing that hymn, by the way. At Doug's funeral, one of the things we shared was a list that Pam wrote just days after Doug's death. And it was a laundry list of things she was thankful for. Wanted it read. And I thought about the courage that it takes to set down your fixation on your pain long enough to note the things you're thankful for. And we celebrated it in that funeral. But I think Pam models for us the way that our sorrow can actually give rise to our gratitude. That's something that Psalm 30 seems to want to do, seems to know something about, precisely because we've been cast down into the depths for a long while, sometimes more than once, precisely because we have been living through the night, we can look to the morning, precisely because all of these things are taking place. There is a reason to look to what God is doing and be jubilant and enthusiastic you have to wail for it to become laughing. You have to mourn for the dancing to have any meaning. And the unhappy presence of our sorrows leads us to a more vibrant sort of happiness. When deliverance comes, and it does come, and God is once again seen as utterly faithful. I wouldn't want to go back to March of 2020. I don't think we are ever going to be completely shed of the pandemic experience. God has led us through. God has led us as Yates through. And so David's commitment here and the note on which he ends, this note of thanksgiving and praise, is the necessary response to what God has done and what God is doing. There's a gracious new day. It may not be completely on top of us yet or completely on top of you, but can you glimpse the ray of light that has shone in today? Every time that light shines, it's just a little teeny glimpse of what we mean as Christians when we talk about resurrection. Because we gather in the name of Jesus, who said he is the resurrection and the life. And in relationship with him, thanksgiving is the language of this relationship. And if we don't give thanks, after the miracle of resurrection comes to us, it can distort and diminish the power of everything that goes on in our lives. Luke 17 has a great story of when Jesus heals 10 lepers who beg for his attention. You probably know this story. You probably also know kind of how the story lands Nine of them hurry back to their ordinary lives, but one returns and gives thanks. And Jesus, I think, rather astonished and maybe a little sad, he asks, where are the others? Whatever the crunch of time, the need of the moment, you know, these aren't new things. I'm sure they felt the pressure to return home to their families or to, to try and find a job or to do whatever else they needed to do to get back into the swing of things. We don't know why they did not return. What we do know is how Jesus affirmed the one who came to him and gave thanks for what had taken place. Get up, he said. Go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And that's 
a weak translation, I think. That word that's translated made you well is a Greek word, sozo. And it's used throughout Luke to describe all kinds of things. When people's bodies are healed. Or when a sinner's life is restored. Or when Lazarus is sort of shaken loose from all the money he stole. All of these things use that same word. But when translators translate it, when they talk about sin, they usually use the word saved. And when they talk about the body, they say made well. They're yoked together. And to understand that, the way Luke tells the story, he says all ten of them were made clean. That is, ritually clean. But only one was saved and made whole. What's the difference? What's the difference? I think it was that return to the gift giver and offering the proper thanks in returning to this one from whom the blessings had flowed. He modeled for all of us how our lives can be lived. As he returns to Jesus, that circle that began as the gift flowed out of God's heart is now come back to God in thanks. This is a man who has become saved because he realizes that he cannot make or fix himself. Even the time he's got isn't his. Whatever pressing needs he felt he had, his first inclination was to return to Jesus and offer thanks. And as he does, he's drawn more deeply into that gracious and miraculous relationship that God has given us, that saves us from our self-reliance, that saves us from wasting our time and our lives on things that have no meaning. He's drawn more deeply into the kingdom of God, into a new way of seeing the world. He's drawn into the way of seeing God's world, God's kingdom. And it's based on the giving and receiving of gifts. It's a world where all of us live in dependence on each other. And we can have the humility to confess that we all have deep needs and hurts. That's what the church can do. We've been given the gift of each other. To be a community that celebrates our place in the world as a creature of God, not a creator. And we're charged to lead kind of the rest of creation, as it were, to live in response to the gift that we've been given of life and of time. There's no substitute for the time that we spend together. Danny talked about that. The difference between a couple of hours and a few intensive days can make all the difference as we learn and as we grow and as we reach out together to the needs of the world. This is a place where we can celebrate being saved, where we can celebrate being made whole. And this church offers all sorts of opportunities to return thanks, whether it's in worship or in missions or in our giving or in our outreach. As we go into this holiday week, ask yourself, take enough time to ask whether our lives and the way we are living them sing this song. That not only offers the right words, but with authentic actions, describes what God has done for us? Are we taking the fullest advantage, offering proper thanks for all of the opportunities that have come to us? What difference might it make if we did that? What difference would it make for the world to see us and our thankful lives completely 
and clearly? And how could the message of depending on God change lives? How could the message of depending upon God change this neighborhood? How might the message of depending finally and fully on God change the world? Amen.